We come now to your word, asking you to illuminate it, magnify it, give us understanding, grant us wisdom according to it. Father, we ask all of these things, and upon the preaching of your word, as it comes to us now, may we be fed by it in our souls. In Christ's name, amen. So again, continuing in the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, as we use for our confession this morning, examining our own hearts according to it, we come to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flowers fade. The Word of our God shall stand forever. Well, it's been uh, a year. And uh, good to be back and looking forward to sharing with my church family uh, all that's been going on for a year. It's been an interesting year for the Sipe family. It's been interesting sitting in the back of the church and watching everybody. I know now who, who adds a little dance move to their singing. I know who, uh, who gives new definition to Frozen Chosen. I know all those things now. So it's, uh, it's good to be able to bring God's Word this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Um, when, when Jesus ascends the mountain, when he gives this sermon, as Matthew describes, he seats himself. He is demonstrating that he is, in fact, the greater Moses. Moses descended the mountain with the law in hand, tablets of stone. And while Moses could only deliver the law, Jesus delivers the meaning of the law and demonstrates that he has actual power to bring it to bear on your heart and on mine. Moses was the law deliverer. Jesus is the actual law giver. Moses is the mouthpiece of God. Jesus is God himself in human flesh. And so imagine being a part of that crowd when Jesus is delivering this sermon. Imagine being a Pharisee in that large crowd who deemed themselves to be pretty adept at knowing the law and at keeping the law, adhering to it. The life of a Pharisee was uh, one of demonstration. They were always showing you that they uh, were in compliance with the law and having the inside track on all the cultural benefits of keeping the law in their day. Or the social outcast who's also sitting on that mountain, right? Who had no standing in the community thinking that the law was only a burden for them. It confirmed their place of impurity or lack. Their life was one of perpetual shame or guilt. They didn't measure up, and they had very little prospect of changing any of that in their culture. It was into this world that Jesus steps in, sits down on that mountain, and begins to explain the law. And he explained it in such a way that both those groups both Pharisee and social outcast, had to stop and catch their breath. And that will be you today. That will be me as we hear Jesus unveil the meaning of the law for us. He will speak to you in Matthew 5, 8 as well as to me. This particular beatitude is on the side of what's called the fulfillment section of the beatitudes. The first several were all from lack or need. But this one is one of fulfillment and of great blessing. It is a full-on jaw-dropper to hear him say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall 
see God. Surprisingly, it's not the last beatitude, right? This one seems like it's the capstone. It's the one that was meant to be last, but it's not. It, it, it's still, though, the, has the force of everything that we look for as followers of Jesus, that everyone that was taught from the Bible sees this as the goal that one day what will make sense of all this world to us is that we will see God himself. And we're going to use the same outline we've been using for several weeks with Jim, that our character, as Jesus describes it and what it should be, is our first point. That the promise, our promise, is the result of that character. And then finally, we have this call to respond in faith. So we'll begin with our character. Blessed are the pure in heart. When Jesus says that, he's giving a description of those who live in the kingdom, those who will live in his culture, those who will be changed by him, will be pure in heart. And here is the power of his teaching, that Jesus and Christianity focuses on the heart, not on externals. Religious people focus on externals. Moral people focus on externals. Jesus focuses on the heart. He does not focus on behavior like the Pharisees did. Pharisees very proud of being able to toe the line biblically. The Pharisees very proud of their veneer of morality. Or as Jesus described them, whitewashed tombs. Very presentable on the outside but dead on the inside. Jesus does not focus on that outward behavior. The Pharisees could boast of tithing meticulously. They tithed on everything in their house. They boasted about going overseas and making people disciples of their ways, of their religious practices. And so it is with all people who think they're morally good. They want others to do moral good things like them. They focus only on externals. Jesus focuses on the heart. He does not focus on intellect. Intellect is not his focus either. And this is very difficult, I think, for us as PCA folks to hear, is that we're careful to have our theology spot on, and that's a good thing. And we're careful to have lots of Bible knowledge, and that's a good thing. And we should have a robust Bible knowledge and theology. But for Jesus, that intellectual ability is not his focus. Moreover, we're often reminded that a prudent life goal, something that you should do in this life, is get a very good education. And it is. It's a good thing. But even erudition is not the focus of Christianity. Even the, the, the quality of your education is not his focus. Some of the most devout Christians I have ever met live in places where the access to formal education is non-existent. And yet this beatitude was lived out because they love Jesus. Environment is not the focus for Jesus. Like many in our day, the ultimate focus on externals is the critique of the environment all around us, right? What we swim in, what we, what we live in, what we go to work in, where we go play, where we go shop. That that's the focus and that raising kids in this day is really difficult day in and day out. And it is. And that focus has been fairly historic 
not just for Christians, but also for others. For example, Socrates was one who taught that you are all pre-programmed before you're born into who you are and what you will be and how you will think. And all you really need is the logic of some good questions to bring that out of you. That was his view of life. John Locke, a philosopher who influenced our country, had just the opposite view. He practiced the tabula rasa, which is the blank slate theory, that you are all blank slates when you're born, and you're really affected by the environment around you. Sigmund Freud took that very thought and basically said, let's go to the logical end. If we could just fix all the environmental problems, we could fix you and all of your problems. There are gargantuan political debates even today, even this very day, that the solution is really to fix everything out there. Poverty, health care, job markets, etc. And those are big topics, and Jesus talks about those topics. But Jesus' teaching was radically different He did not focus on behavior, intellect, or the environment around you. Jesus taught that kingdom culture has to address your heart. The brokenness of the human heart. That is the focus of kingdom culture. That is where we live. That's the core of who we are. It's where our sin originates. And so Jesus says that is his focus. This is exactly what he was addressing in Matthew 15 when the Pharisees are asking him questions about his disciples and they're basically criticizing his disciples. They're saying, your disciples, when they go to eat, they don't ceremonially wash their hands and do all the rituals before they eat. That's crazy. And Jesus stops and corrects them. He says, by the way, let's talk about the fourth commandment and your inability to care for your parents. And in the middle of him saying that to them, he says this and hear this. He says, first of all, that those Pharisees' hearts were far from him, even though they were concerned about all these externals. He then explains the issue's not what goes in your mouth. Listen to what he says. But what comes out of your mouth proceeds from your heart, and this defiles a person. For out of a heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These, Jesus says, are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, ceremonially, does not defile anyone. Anyone. This is the potency of Jesus' teaching on the human heart. John Piper, when he preached on this same beatitude, talks about this. He says, you know, let's just assume for a moment that all acts of murder stopped in our culture. And we'll all say in Memphis. But if all these acts of murder stop, but in our community... And what if all acts of adultery came to an end outside our culture and and in our communities? John Piper says, Jesus would say, that is not enough. Because the focus was never on the outward behavior. Oh, those are important things, and, and Jesus wants all those things to stop. But his focus was on the heart. He teaches that if our hearts aren't pure, if we hate our brother in our hearts, if we lust after someone other than our spouse, then we're still guilty of murder. We're still guilty of adultery, no matter how many acts externally change. 
Jesus' focus is on the heart. And the character of our hearts are to reflect purity. Blessed are the pure in heart. And he's going to define purity as well. Because the word he uses, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, has two parts. Number one, that it is not partial. This kind of purity is a heart that is not a partial giving. It's wholehearted purity. It's a completeness. You never talk about things being partially pure. You never talk about things being partially clean. You talk about things being pure or being clean. Wholehearted. Wholeness. But he also uses a word that also brings us back to uh, an illustration that I, I could just think of as uh, household laundry. So for the past little while, Shannon and I have been living tiny house life. If you've been by, you know what I'm talking about. We've been living tiny house life. And there are some good things about that, and there are some interesting things about it as well. But here are a couple things that you should know. It takes about 20 minutes to tidy up the place. And every wife here is hearing that takes about 20 minutes to tidy up the place and saying internally, amen, right? Amen. And for my brothers, husbands, it takes about 100, 120 bucks to cool and heat the place all year. It's awesome. It's awesome. I love tiny living. There are other difficulties, though, and here's the one that I wanted to use as a picture of this purity of heart. It also requires your laundry to go into a tiny house living too, right? So... Um, Shannon has been learning and excelling in laundry origami for the last couple years. Because in a tiny house, you have to also compartmentalize all of your clothing. They all have to be folded in a certain geometric pattern to fit into the compartments that you have in your tiny living arrangement. And she has excelled at this. And that's the picture that Jesus is using when he's talking about purity of heart. He's talking about a heart that doesn't have all these folds to it. That's not so divided into so many compartments. When Jesus talked about purity of heart, he talked about a heart that was undivided. Not compartmentalized. Not trying to think about these things over here and those things over there as separate and disconnected. Work, home, church, play vacation. No. When Jesus talks about the purity of heart that belongs to the kingdom, he's talking about a heart that is no division in its commitment to him. Undivided in its focus on him. No divisions. And this is our real challenge. We are all, because of the fall, because we're sinners, divided in heart. You know this. I don't have to tell you this. In the quiet of your place, in the quiet of your car, driving around, you know that your heart is so divided in so many ways. It's the pivotal problem with the current confusion over all the things going on in our culture, particularly identity. The argument for the termination of current identity is this, that the only person who can determine who we are is the individual. And Jesus would speak to that and say, You've got a divided heart. You've got a heart that's impure. And so if you're the one who's deciding what your identity is, guess what's going to happen tomorrow? You'll change your mind again. And next week, and next month, and next year. What we really need is to have our hearts purified, to be undivided, 
to have someone outside of us who created us tell us who we are and who we are to be. And when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's speaking to that. This beatitude also speaks to the benefit that comes from the gospel because the gospel is where we get a purified heart, right? And the benefit, our promise is this. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Uh, That promise is no small statement. Every world religion speaks to that end. Every imam, every guru, every rabbi, every spirit guide is trying to say that they're pointing you to a reality where you're so fulfilled that you have seen God. Yet Jesus claims that he is the only source of fulfillment ultimately. In fact, he tells his disciples, when you see me, you've seen the Father. Even though no man can see God, as the Old Testament teaches, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Because in Him, He's given us a purified, undivided heart and clarity of eyes. Listen to what the rest of the Bible teaches about this promise that one day, for the people of God, the the ultimate benefit is to see Him. Listen to Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Or Paul's prophetic promise in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which in verse 12 says this, For now, now, today, We see in a mirror dimly, right? But then we will see him face to face. Or Revelation 22, sort of a mic drop moment. No longer, Revelation says, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they'll reign forever and ever. The Bible holds out this blessing as the promise of Jesus' work for us. That we would see him. And that's not just there. That we would see him in the here and now. There's a here and now aspect of it. And a ultimate consummate vision. In the here and now, and this is where if you're saying, what do I take home from blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Take this home. In the here and now, since your conversion, for those of you who know Jesus, he's given you several gifts, the scriptures, prayer, and the sacraments. We call these the means of grace. And in the means of grace, we are able to see the hand of God at work in our lives as we study the scriptures as we pray, as we observe the sacraments. We're able to see God's hand at work. Things that He promised He would do. Things that only God can do. 
Here are your two examples. There are things that only God can do, and when you see these things, you've seen God. Only God can bring repentance, and if you've ever repented in your entire life, then I can tell you that I've seen the work of God in your life. When you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that only the Spirit of God can do that in your life. Only God can do it. And so when you believe upon Jesus today and every day, I can tell you I can see God at work in your life. In fact, I would say part of the privilege of being part of the community of faith, of being part of the church here and around the world, being a part of that family, one of the great privileges is to watch and see your brothers and sisters go to work, go into their communities, go into their families and serve, go into their playtime and serve and be able to watch the hand of God change their lives over years and years. It's one of the privileges I have to be able to come up to you or drop you a card in the mail or just send you a text and say, uh, what you did the other day was beautiful. It was God at work in you, and I've seen it. Is there anything more encouraging to you in the here and now than for somebody who knows you, loves you, comes up to you and sees you and says, I see God at work in your life. It's awesome. It's a great privilege. It's a great call that you have as you interact with one another. When you see repentance, you're seeing God. When you see people believe, you're seeing God at work. When you see people grow in the grace of Jesus, you're seeing God at work in their lives. That's his handiwork. It's what he does. But I know what you're thinking when it says, for they shall see God, what you're really thinking and what I'm thinking is, I'm talking about that moment. I'm talking about that time when I will see him face to face. And for all of those who believe, bank on it. You're going to see him face to face. And the Bible says it will change you. It does change you here, but it will change you in such a a different way. And here's what it says. R.C. Sproul calls that vision the beatific vision. It's the end all, be all of the Christian experience. That once you see him, you'll be completely fulfilled forever. No more tears is how the Bible describes it. No more pain. No more suffering. No more difficulty in the culture over court verdicts. No more bickering. No more death. When you see him face to face, you will be fulfilled. You'll be complete. So it is for those whose hearts have been purified, whose hands have been cleaned by the work of Christ. And that leads us to our call. And there are just three things I think you're called to today, and here they are and we're done. The first one is this, that in Jesus... The purity that we're talking about has come from a foreign source. It did not come from you. This purity of heart does not come from you. It's not your behavior. It's not your intellect. It's not the environmental changes that you made of moving into a right neighborhood and putting your kids in the right school and doing all. It's not those things. Those things are fine. But that purity of heart came from a foreign source outside of you. But it's all yours now because of the work of Jesus because of what he's done in your life, it's all yours. That Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection become the source 
of our purity and our cleansing. And we'll spend, brothers and sisters, the rest of this earthly life, as long as we're together here, as long as the Lord leaves us together, we'll spend the rest of our time seeing His work in the means of grace, growing in Jesus to this end. So that's the first call, is just to be reminded that that purity came from outside of you. It's a gift of God, and it's at work in you now. Number two, that we are also called in Jesus to see the transformation of the world through Him. To be able to look upon what's happening outside of us and in us and be able to spot Him at work. We should, because of His work in our hearts, commit to look for His handiwork in the world around us and in our brothers and sisters and around the world. And we should, and here's your call, take a minute to stop and tell your brother and sister, I see Christ in you. I see it. I see Him at work. It's a great blessing. It will be a source of joy for them to hear from you that you can see Christ at work in them. And then finally, we're also called in Jesus to one day experience the beatific vision that will transform us to the core. That one day that all who believe will see Jesus face to face either at your death or the other time where he's going to take his people to himself You will see him face to face and you will forever be fulfilled, forever complete. And I know how some of you are struggling and suffer. And I'm telling you, it's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great day. That day is on my calendar. I don't know when it is, but I am so looking forward to that day. The song we sing says it well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. The things of earth, let me just tell you what those are. Death, division, suffering will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, our prayer this morning is that you would give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another And let us be a a generation, a church, individuals that seek your face, O God of Jacob. And let us see you, Lord Jesus, in the supper that we are about to partake. And help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our King. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.